Hello and welcome back to the show. This is David Scales for Surf Splendor, bringing you an episode today with board builder Travis Reynolds. Actually, I should say 2018 winner of the Icons of Foam tribute to the Masters at the boardroom show uh, two weeks ago. You've heard Scott Bass and I talking about that a lot, the Icons of Foam shaping competition. This is the man that won it, Travis Reynolds. So we will get into that in this show. Um, I've got a couple of things I wanted to bring you up to speed on before I do that. The aforementioned Scott Bass has launched a new podcast. It's called The Boardroom. And he's talking about waves and the equipment to ride them with. He's going to be interviewing a lot of people. Episode one launched earlier this week. He interviews Willie McFarlane, who is the son of the owner of American Wave Machines, which is the company that is responsible for the technology in the wave pool that we've seen in Waco, Texas. They've been developing that technology for a very long time. So uh, really interesting conversation. And Scott gives a great little uh, history lesson on wave pools. So check that out. You can download it. It's available on its own feed. So pull up your app and search The Boardroom. You will find it there. Chas Smith and I are recording an episode of The Grit tomorrow with a special guest snowboarder, Todd Richards. Our entire goal there is to get down to the bottom of the number of degrees in an air rotation in surfing. It doesn't matter to me that it's in surfing or not, but for some reason, snowboarders and skateboarders want to add an extra 180 degrees onto surfboard rotations and call a 360, a 540, a 540, a 720, all that. So we are going to analyze it thoroughly with Todd tomorrow, and we will get to the bottom of it and put that debate to rest so that we can stop arguing online about it. I think if you follow um, Surf Splendor on social media, you might have seen that I was recording with Dave Parmenter up in San Luis Obispo last week. We recorded for about four hours, and that will be released as a series of episodes. So look forward to that. I'm currently editing it. It's maybe about a month away from publishing or so. So you can look forward to that. And then lastly, I wanted to mention next week, I'm publishing an interview with Harvard PhD philosopher, Aaron James. He has a new book out called Surfing with Sartre, and it's basically a uh, theoretical debate with the famous philosopher Sartre. And he, Aaron, is making the argument that surfers basically are on the right side of history. We have kind of uncovered the key principles to succeed at life through our surfing experience, strictly by uh, the lessons learned in the ocean and the humbling of Mother Nature. The perseverance, persistence that it takes, all that sort of stuff. It's a very good book. And uh, more importantly, Aaron's just a super interesting guy. It is one of the most uh, heady conversations I've ever had on this podcast. And he's a great surfer as well, so for whatever that's worth. So you can look forward to all that stuff um, right now and next week and in perpetuity on Surf Splendor. One other note. We did that Maui Leaflight board giveaway with Jeff Timponi last month. I'm going to do it again next month with a new board builder, an entirely different type of board than we've ever discussed on this show. It's actually an Alaya. So look into what an Alaya is. I'll break it down in depth next month. But if you are a financial contributor to the show via our PayPal link on surfsplendorpodcast.com, you will be in the running to win that. So, um, Specifically, if you donate in the month of June, you will be entered into the raffle. One lucky person will win that Aliyah. So uh, look forward to that. Anyway, lots to come, but let's focus on uh, what's at hand here today. And that is Travis Reynolds. 
board builder Travis Reynolds from Santa Cruz, California. We recorded this episode in Santa Cruz last week, I believe it was. And um, I've interacted with Travis a handful of times over the years, kind of just in passing. This was the first time I've gotten to really thoroughly engage with him. And I was very pleased with what he delivered. He brought his A game, gives his origin story, of course, but um, discusses his experimentation with, with asymmetrical boards really talks about the perils of um, rapid growth. You know, his business is thriving. So how do you manage that growth? How do you incorporate automated systems? How do you manage your time? How do you raise a family successfully along the same time? Uh, At the same time, talks about the value of having a thick skin in terms of dealing with feedback, both from surfers and the internet at large. Lots of good stuff packed into this episode. Thank you, Travis Reynolds. I hope that you, the listener, enjoy this conversation. I will be back at the end of the episode to sign us off. But until then, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor. Enjoy my conversation with Travis Reynolds. Firstly, congratulations on the Icons of Foam. Tribute to Mark Andrini win. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. <laughs> How was that experience? Oh, it was amazing. You was know, it? yeah, just to be uh, to be asked to do it by Mark, uh, someone who I've looked up to for years, and uh, you know, to be thrown in the ring with all these legendary guys, kind of daunting, but uh, just an honor to be there more than anything. You know. Obviously, I've interviewed a lot of shapers, and we talk a lot about board building, but what are the unique challenges uh, in working in that environment? Namely, a glass shaping bay, and then secondly, having an audience. Yeah, it's, it's um, the challenge is probably just how foreign the environment is. You know, being a, a shaper, typically we work in a room that has no windows, uh, fluorescent lights, and uh, not a lot of people coming in and out or, or watching you. So, uh, yeah, it's just a whole different realm, you know. Typically, for me at work, I, like, close the door and put the, the music on, and I'm in, in my realm for a couple hours, and then I step out and step back in, you know. Yeah. But that, with all those people there, it's definitely added weight and pressure, you know. For me, I'm not, like, a big... I'm just not super comfortable in front of a lot of people, you know, so... Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why I chose surfboard building, too, because I don't have to be in front of people. So you can be in a room by yourself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's, uh, it was an experience, to say the least. Um, what about the lighting? You mentioned fluorescent lighting. Like, how different is the lighting, and how much does that affect the final shape? Yeah, lighting uh, really helps with uh, the, the finish product of the board. Basically, the lighting helps you see the scratches and... Um, contours and that sort of thing so being in a glass box with lights coming from the outside of the box in and and then the lights in there is a lot of distraction but uh i kind of tried just tried to block all that out and just pretend like or act like i was just another day at work you know i, I think that was just my technique is put the blinders on and just kind of focus on the board and yeah work my way through it with those limitations if you were to replicate, let's say, that final board, the glider, 
today in your shaping bay. How much of a percentage difference do you think there would be between the one you replicated at the boardroom show versus the one you would do here today? How similar would those finished planks be and how yeah, different? I think they would be pretty similar. Um, okay. Yeah. The, I mean, the difference would be here in my shaping room was I would be taking measurements and, uh, you know, just taking my time a little bit more. I think we, we had two hours to do that 11 foot board and, um, I don't know about Wayne when he was doing it, but for me, it was like just enough time, you know, barely. Okay. Yeah. At the end it was kind of like, I'm done. And the time was over. Okay. So, yeah. What's your, what's your relationship with Mark Andrini? How do you know Mark? Um, I met Mark through the Santa Cruz board builders guild. Um, he gets his boards glassed here and, uh, just just kind of coming in having conversations with him i've i've admired his boards for years um i'm really intrigued by the whole shape um and he, obviously he's a big influencer and has been doing that for years and years um so yeah just just i've always admired his work and then crossing paths with him in the shop and then uh, we've built this relationship over the past few years of me working in there and uh yeah, he's just become a friend and uh, a mentor, someone someone to, to talk to when uh, I have a question about something or, uh, you know, he's he's quite the history buff, so he's always got a story about something or, you know. Surf history or just history? More, more history from what I, surf history from what I get out of him, you yeah. know. So it's usually all stoked about surfing and that sort of thing when he comes in the shop. Do you feel like because of your relationship, you had any kind of insider advantage over the other shapers at the competition? I would say my advantage would be in that I see his boards all the time, you know, moving them around, moving them out of the way in the shop or some moving around. You know, I feel the rails and yeah, I, I look at his boards and I have one of his Serena models that I ride, you know, and um, yeah, I've dissected his boards over the years just by looking at them. So that's definitely you know, an advantage, I would say. Yeah. You know, so I, I'm not going to hide from that. That's, that's the <laughs> truth, you know? But, I mean, yeah. every year, you're not the only one. Every year in those shaping competitions, it's like either somebody, like the Rusty one. There's like guys in the competition who worked for Rusty yeah. for 20 years. Yeah, you know? yeah. So there's not always an equal or uh, level playing field. But yeah. competition isn't really the point either. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I'm not a very competitive person. And, uh... Yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like those guys, everybody's a great shaper in there. They all have a lot more years than me mm -hmm. shaping, you know. I've been doing it for 18 years, and I think a lot of those guys probably have double that under their belts. Totally. And, uh, you know, a lot of those boards were from an era before. The first two boards, basically, are from an era from before I was born, you know. So um, I don't know if that's an advantage for them or what, but, you know, I do have an advantage from looking at those boards almost every day. So, sure. Yeah. 18 years ago, you started shaping. Yeah. What was your introduction? <laughs> um, well, I used to ride, I guess this starts before 18 years ago, but I started, you know, I was on Michelle Juneau's surf team, and uh, that was kind of end of middle school through high school, riding for him and uh, watching him cut my boards out and playing a little bit off of them. And, you know, I'd poke my head in and watch my boards get worked on over those years. So I kind of got a taste of the the industry through that. And uh, when I was 18, I moved to Hawaii 
to go live with my dad after high school and uh, basically it just didn't make sense for me to be shipping Michelle's boards over there I didn't really have the the funds to do that and you know it just didn't make sense and I kind of always like using my hands so I, I figured why not just try to make my own board you know I've seen it been done over the years so I, I borrowed some tools from from a buddy and you know just kind of roughed out my first board in Hawaii in Hawaii yeah it was, was that Oahu it was on Oahu it, um, that first one was under a house in this shaping bay at this guy's house in uh, Hawaii Kai like up on I think Mariner's Ridge or something like that and uh, he actually worked at the it was Clark Foam then Fiberglass Hawaii uh, US Blanks distributor in Wahiwa he worked there so he kind of he had some tools and he was like a part-time kind of shaper guy but that uh, just let let me use his tools for that first board wow what'd yeah. you make uh, I was pretty ambitious I made a um, 611 single fin diamond tail little tight diamond tail uh, basically we were going into winter and uh, I was living on my dad's boat in the Alloway Harbor at the time and he was selling his boat so I was gonna move to the North Shore and I wanted something that was more suitable for those waves for North Shore waves so I made this single fin with like small pipe kind of that style of wave you know in mind <laughs> And, uh, I mean, it was my first board. It was pretty crude, but sure. the first session I had on it was at pipe, which is pretty magical. And, uh, you know, it floated. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get shacked? Oh, I don't, I don't know. If, I don't think I got shacked. Come on, dude. I don't think be I survived. humble. I think I survived. <laughs> How did the board go? Uh, yeah, it was good. I mean, I mean did you ride it yeah, much yeah. beyond that? Yeah, or? I rode that board a bunch and a lot of friends rode that board and, um, it was cool. You know, it's a single fin, so you could ride it when it was smaller or a little bit bigger. And um, I don't know. It's you, I would say probably everybody's first board that they make works just because you're so fired up on the whole process. Yeah. You know, you're just stoked to build something all the way through and and then have it under your arm and then get it in the water. And, you know, you can't beat that feeling, you know. Sure. So. Yeah. Um, one of the – I'm kind of curious – about that board style specifically obviously it's for certain waves but um we're similar ages and i grew up in southern california and all of my exposure to santa cruz was like rat boy flea barney like high performance yeah. surfing mainly focused at the lane um what was your experience like growing up here and kind of what surfing were you exposed to yeah so i i grew up at pleasure point um the east side of santa cruz uh right during you know my surfing introduction was like the early nine, 90s mid 90s kind of and that was a pretty heavy time for surfing in santa cruz there's like a lot of heavy vibes you know what do you mean from by? just like both sides of town they they wouldn't really converse too much and then just for me i was mostly on the east side of town and there was just a lot of guys who were on drugs and hanging out on the rail you know and they were just like a lot of heckling going on and a lot of just it was pretty dark you know surfing was dark at that time there's guys surfing really well super progressive but uh there was also this this kind of dark kind of druggy thing going on and uh i had i was living with my mom single mom and she was like terrified that i would go down that road you know 
and I think I, I was aware of that and uh, just kind of tried to just put a buffer between me and that scene. And that kind of, from me doing that, I like gravitated to all the longboarders of the time, you know, and they kind of took me in as this like young Grom. So my initial surfing experience was on a longboard and then I found shortboarding later. So okay. that kind of separated me from that heavy shortboard scene besides getting heckled by the shortboarders as being yeah. a longboarder, but yeah. What, uh, who were the longboarders at that time? Uh, we had, it was a pretty tight crew actually. There was like Jay Moriarty, um, Matt Tanner, Jed Knoll, Shiloh Steinthal. Uh, then there's a little older guys like Kevin Misk, uh, Wingnut. Who else? There's a, there was a bunch of other guys too. You know, I had like my little crew of younger guys too that we surfed with. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cameron and Johnny Meeks and those guys. One of my favorite stories that I think it might have been on Liquid Salt uh, was about your first board being your dad sanding your first board in the parking lot of work while you were sleeping yeah. in the van. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell me that story or tell me about that board. Yeah. So. Or was that your first board? Is that was, that was. I think that was my first board. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, um, my dad it was an inter- interesting dude. He uh, he grew up surfing, you know, as a young kid. He, his mom, my grandma, was kind of a staple on the beach at Malibu oh, for okay. a certain time and, uh, you know, a couple of years. So my dad was a young kid who grew up in Malibu, and he was big on surfing. And he one of his first jobs was at Plastic Fantastic, and then he, then he moved to Hobie building uh, the catamarans and that sort of stuff so he was familiar with the process of building boards he had done it and uh his way still to this day if he's going to build a board is he glasses it you know he's always gotten he's shaped maybe 100 boards or something in his lifetime but uh he's always had other shapers like more established shapers shape a board and then he glasses it and uh that's what that first board was. I believe it was a Bruce Jones. Wow. And uh, my dad, at the time, my dad worked at uh, West Marine in Seal Beach. Yep. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I just remember. He, we glassed it. At, he was living in um, Laguna Niguel, and uh, we glassed it in the backyard, and then he sanded. We were driving north because he was going to come, like, drop me off back at my mom's house because I did split time. And... Uh, we, he sanded it, and then I took it out to Malibu on, right after that. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. I think I was probably 12 or something, you know? Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so y- I know you didn't mention this, but he was living in Hawaii at a certain point in your life, so you were kind of spending a little bit of time on Oahu. Yeah. Before moving there when you were a late teenager. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about how the board building communities are different between Oahu and Santa Cruz, Mm -hmm. I mean, board building specifically, um, it seems like a lot of board building communities are very kind of proprietary or board builders are proprietary and it's kind of a closed door policy and they don't want to share secrets. A little different now with Instagram, but, um, and the internet at large, but it seems like Santa Cruz has kind of an open door policy. Mm-hmm. in contrast to what I think of it being elsewhere. Is that true or not? Or? Well, it seems to be. I, I don't notice there being much of like a a rivalry between brands or anything right. here in Santa Cruz. You know, everybody kind of, 
if we run into some each other in the market or something, it's not like we're dodging each other. We're going to like spark up conversation and, and, you know, that sort of thing. In stark contrast, though, to that 90s surfer vibe where it was like east side versus west side, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's way, I mean, back then, if you rode a board, if you were surfing Pleasure Point and you weren't riding like Steve Coletta or Pat Taylor board, then you weren't from that side of town, you know? Right. So uh, now it's, I mean, everything's all kind of washed down or something with boards coming from everywhere you know so there's less and less actual local boards in the water maybe percentage wise because it's so flooded from everything else but yeah yeah i forget what the initial question was but. um well let's kind of reset the question by looking at the list of people you worked with right michelle junod mm-hmm. brian king charlie walker steve coletta mm-hmm. that alone indicates that you know Steve Collette is willing to let you come into his workspace after having worked at somewhere else, yeah. knowing that you might share and trade secrets. I think that's an indicator that it is an open door policy. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I think so. I think that, uh, you know, you have to be respectful about that sort of thing. And yeah. I totally respect Steve and uh, all the people that I've worked with. And I, you know, I'm not trying to replicate their boards, you know, um, some of, some of them probably has rubbed off on me over the years, but, um, I think I just have a different path than they do. We're, we're just filling a different void for surfers, but yeah. Yeah. Um, it's also interesting point about the, there being a smaller percentage of locally made boards in the lineup. Now, I wonder if feeling that pressure from worldwide brands coming into your community forces the community to band together a little bit. Yeah, I would imagine. I think so. I think that's pretty spot on, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. We're located at, the Santa Cruz Board Builders Guild. Can you tell me what is that? <laughs> um, it's basically just a, a contract laminating shop, which works within the space of Doug Hout surfboards. Um, Doug started building boards in this particular building in 1969, and they've been, you know, not much has changed since then. They've, you know, different people have come and gone, but Doug's been holding it down. And, uh, you know, we've, they've had different laminators over the years. And um, now the Santa Cruz Board Builders Guild is run by Doug Fletcher. He's had it for, uh, I would imagine, somewhere around 10 years. And uh, basically they glass boards for uh, most Northern California brands, you know. Um, we have some people, we've had people come down from Canada. Um, not too too far south because I think that there's quite a bit more lamination options in Southern California than there are up here, but um, they've kind of strived to do quality work, and uh, they specialize in color laminations, and uh, they also do performance shortboards and that sort of thing, but uh, I think just the, the quality of their work that they do uh, and that they keep up and consistency keeps them busy, you know. I'd like for you to kind of paint the picture of the Hout Shop and its importance in Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that type of a structure doesn't exist really anywhere else anymore, where it's like a retail store, shaping bays in the back. It's it's pretty cool that it's been able to stick around for so long and keep going, you know. Um, Like you're saying, there probably isn't many of those around, if there are any, where um, you can walk into a retail store in the front and then 
find yourself wandering to the back and you're walking by and you're like getting polishing compound sprayed on you and you're sniffing dust and you know watching the process all in the same building um it's, it's pretty cool you know it's pretty cool that boards are being made and they don't even have to go outside to get into the shop they just walk right through the hallway up to the front you know it adds a real level of credibility to the retail store yeah you know i mean as retail has grown over the years it's like those shops the shops selling the most retail or the retail shops selling the most surf gear are so far removed from the actual core community (laughs) you know totally this is one example where they're just completely intertwined. Yeah, it's really cool. You know, the the guys that are running the shop, it's it's pretty new. They got there's kind of some new management going on, but they uh, they totally recognize that as a valuable asset to their to the business, and uh, they they want to make like a surf board oriented shop instead of like a, a t-shirt clothing shop with a couple of boards. So, right. Good. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean it should evolve you're mentioning new new kind of management like it should always evolve you know to adapt the community's needs i think so um how did you end up there um i met doug fletcher who's the owner and head laminator um when i was working at michelle Juno's shop just like two streets over and um we started building a couple boards together uh just to he would order some and then he he was selling glassing them and selling them and uh he, you know, we'd, I just really liked him a lot. He was just, like, very approachable and easy to talk to, and I just had a good feeling for him. But I was connected to Michelle and his shop, too. But um, <clears throat> the laminator that was over there, Tony Micus, was kind of ending his career, and um, my career was kind of picking up, and I just, you know, I was doing a lot of the laminating, and Tony was doing a lot of laminating, but it would just the flow was not happening to where I could grow to where I wanted to and uh, you know Fletch and those guys just you know a room opened up the shaping bay basically opened up and they offered it to me and I you know went home and talked to the family about it and you know we decided that that would be a good option so here we are so how many shaping bays do they have there they have two solid shaping bays where like there's me and there's Doug Hout who have like the mainstay shaping bays. And then there's kind of a guest utilitarian shaping bay where um, we have Jeffrey Devine shaping there and um, people from out of town come and shape there. And, you know, it's it's a random kind of room. Yeah. Um, We kind of glossed over it, but you grew up riding Michel Junod's boards. Yeah. And then you ultimately ended up kind of working for him mm-hmm. at a certain time. Who are some of your other influences in your board building? Um, not only in kind of you coming up, but influences in your current boards that you're building. Um, well, growing, yeah, I guess growing up uh, as a board builder, the people who have influenced me are probably the people that I've, I've worked with or been surrounded by. And uh, that would be, you know, Michelle, big one in the beginning, uh, Steve Coletta. Uh, Jeff Raish, I worked with him on the M10 surfboards for quite a while, and uh, who else? And the people so I've surrounded by Andrini, um, Doug Hout for sure. Um, those are kind of the, the mainstays. Steve Coletta for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, th- those guys really influenced me to where I'm at. Watching those guys work and uh, being around them, you know, I've learned a lot. And then going into like influential surfers that or shapers i should say that uh 
I'm looking at these days are, you know, probably I'm really into Birch, what he's doing. Um, who else? Lovelace. What, what cool. about what he's doing? Um, I just think that he he has he's not being held back by anything, and he's not shaping boards for the consumers. He's kind of just shaping boards to work well, you know. And obviously, consumers are gravitating to that. But uh, it just seems really genuine and pure. He's doing it because he loves to do it, you know. Um, yeah, I think that's great. And then there's like Manny Caro and um, who else? All, a lot of guys, Tyler Hazekian, Skip Fry, you know, all these guys. I'm influenced by everybody, basically. I feel like I'm just a big sponge, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm still young, but... How would you define the style of boards that you're building? Um, I mean, how, how could I define it? I mean, utilitarian is kind of the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, functional, that's, that's what I want them to be more than anything. And then uh, I want them to last, and I want them to be beautiful and you know coming after the function but yeah just kind of a board I like building boards any kind of board you know it's I don't just build mid lengths or just build fishes or long boards you know I kind of try to do it everything <laughs> is there anything you don't build I don't build sups and I haven't <laughs> built any <laughs> uh, foil boards yet so is that a moral decision um in, in a way I guess it is I don't know I mean People do whatever you want to do. I just think they're they're best suited for flat water. <laughs> you know? Oh, okay. Yeah. So they do serve a purpose. I think they're great for that. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, what's your interest in asymmetrical boards? Um, I'm really interested in it. You know, I I wouldn't base my whole brand around it in any way, but uh, I'm definitely interested in it. I love riding them, and I think there's a lot to explore there. What's the interest? Um, like, whose have you ridden? What have been the kind of benefits of those designs? Um, I, you know, I haven't ridden a ton of other people. So the first time I rode one was uh, one of Malcolm Campbell's Campbell Brothers Fife and Bonzer that I had on the North Shore for like it lasted two seasons, and uh, it was an asymmetrical board, and that thing just blew my mind, and. Uh, I was shaping, building boards at the time, but I had that board, and I loved riding that thing. And that thing really just—it just, it just in, ignited something in me about that. But I kind of drifted away from ASIM boards for a while after that. But I, it was always back there. Yeah. And then, um, you know, I saw what Birch was doing, and uh, Thomas Campbell, buddy, buddy of ours, um, he's friends with Birch. He kind of came to me as like I really want. I got. He had gotten a couple boards from him, and he wanted to try to work on something with me. And uh, I'm just super open to work on anything. So uh, we we jumped into trying to design a particular shape. So um, that's what we've been working on is this cattywampus we call it uh, asymmetrical board. But uh, I'm not building a bunch of different asymmetrical boards. I've kind of been focusing on one particular this one particular model really i'm not trying to shape it you know longboard asims and you know everything so can you explain some of the design features of that board um yeah so the board is based off of your stance which is a major misconception with uh asymmetrical boards you know whenever somebody sees it they go oh that thing's for going right only or that thing's for going left only it's the first thing everybody says every time yeah it's just the first thing it is yeah every time yeah 
And so basically, um, for the design of it, we were kind of looking at how you can apply pressure and weight and, and that sort of thing, toe and heel side differences. And I was also looking at, you know, dents on boards and, you know, noticing that like your front foot is, it's at an angle. It's not like crossing the stringer perfectly, you know, it's like pointing towards the nose a little bit, a little bit different for everybody depending on your stance. But if you draw a line on that front foot angle, you know, your wide point would shift, you know, off of that. Because the curve of the board is based off of where your foot's pointing, you know? So the one design feature is the wide point is where your toes are pointing. Basically, your toes and your heel. arrow from Yeah, your, your toe and your heel on right, your front right, foot right, right. would be where the wide point would be shifted to instead of making it symmetrical in the middle of the board. Okay. So that's a, that's a major part of it. Um, so that would indicate that you have to look at somebody's board that they've been riding and design for their specific stance. Yeah, yeah. That, that would be one of the first steps to bring a board in and, and dissect that. Okay. And then um, by doing that, by shifting the wide point, um, you end up changing the rail line. And uh, that creates a, a little bit straighter rail line on your toe side because you're bringing the wide point farther forward and then a more hippie kind of curvy on your heel side and uh, kind of sticking to the tradition of the asymmetrical boards, the tail block is a little different, it's a little shorter on your heel side and a little longer on your toe side. And uh, I've been doing uh, basically thruster setups on those. Um, the, the fin cluster is basically the same that you would have on a standard shortboard, but um, nothing's lined up off the stringer so it looks looks even more crooked kind of but it's really the three fin cluster is exactly like you would have on your shortboard and you would ride the same fins that you would ride on your shortboard so okay. so there's that going on and then um i've been putting a little concave in the nose like a concave channel in the nose similar to what birch is doing which really helps the board paddle well it's basically just for when the board's flat on the water, so paddling. And it doesn't affect the board when it's on rail. Hmm. So that's something you notice. People trip out on that when they look at that, too, because it kind of stands out. But um. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInJobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, 
totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. I try to keep the bottom contours pretty simple. And the weirdest part about the board is probably the outline because the fins are all the same. But uh, man, they've been working really good. People are super stoked. Um, they work extremely well backside. It's crazy, you know. <laughs> so what about those kind of design features how does it translate into the water what about those makes it go good well um i i think that having the shorter rail line on your heel side just helps helps you turn tighter where, where you need the help on your backside you know and and being able to apply more pressure on a straighter rail line you can get more speed and more drive and you know um, it's just this, this balance of control and, and drive and, you know, just trying to find that medium there to where it's all coming together. Um, the, the main thing about those is they look so weird, so you don't want to, like, psych yourself out before you get on it. You kind of just want to just jump on it and throw it under your feet and go, and then you feel it and they, they work, you know? Is there a difference between thicknesses? It's pretty, it's pretty symmetrical, you know. I don't okay. do a ton of measurements on those boards. It's kind of like I measure the width and I go for the thickness that I'm going for and make sure that the the rocker's there. But is the width from stringer to rail different on heel side versus toe side? It is a little different, yeah, because everything's shifted. So if you, um, you know, since the wide point shifted a little bit, then if you measure right in the middle across the stringer, it's going to be a little different. You what know. about at the widest point on either side? Are those equivalent? Um, it's not not symmetrical like a yin yang like that. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's almost like um, one side almost that one rail line almost would be a template from from a mid length or a little bit longer board, and then the the other rail line is like a performance short board, and they kind of blend together. You know. So you have two totally different outlines. It's like two boards on the outline. If you can completely divorce your kind of visual perception and just go out there, stand up on the board and start riding it, will it feel different than a symmetrical board? Yeah, I think it. Um, typically the first session, it feels a little different. It, typically you might say, oh, it feels really loose on my heel side and then kind of stiff on my toe side, you know, just, but that stiffness once you learn learn to harness it translates into drive and speed so it's just there's just a minute little adjustment you know that you don't have to overanalyze it you can just get on it and ride it but it's it's just foreign it's not the exact same as your other board you know you said you haven't ridden a lot of other people's asymmetricals who can you even um lean on for advice when exploring these design concepts um you know, probably the most passionate person that I've come across about it uh, and who can put it all into words the best is probably Donald Brink. You know, he, the guy is so good with his words and you can just get in in-depth conversations with him about asymmetrical boards, you know, all day long. So he's someone that I could totally chat about with and maybe someday we'll work on a board together. You know, that'd be pretty cool to do an asymmetrical mm-hmm. board or whatever that means. And... Um, you know, Ryan Birch came up and shaped a couple boards for Thomas in my shaping bay a couple years ago, and I'd poke my head in and, um, you know, just try to get a little insight from, from that little session, you know, those couple sessions, and just seeing how he approaches it. And, you know, that's 
that's another another uh, I guess some more insight that I've gotten from it but if you do see um, performance benefits in those designs or in the one that you're making but you started by saying you're not going to transition your whole program to incorporating asymmetry yeah why not I don't know I think it's they're, they're like I, I always have one in my quiver and I love writing them but I think that it's not the only option you know I'm kind of like ride the right board for the right occasion kind of thing and I've that's that's been my whole approach so um, I don't know I just don't think that I'm willing to just go down that rabbit hole you know and just shape asymmetrical boards because I love symmetrical boards as well you know I guess um, another way to ask it is are there any downsides to the asymmetrical designs Um, are there any limitations to them I haven't found many limitations with the function of them, really. Um, I mean, there's a lot to learn still, and there's tons of room for improvement, just like on every board. But kind of the, as a business aspect, the downside would be just uh, the acceptance from the customers. You know, they kind of everybody's kind of scared of them. They look at them and go, you know, it just doesn't compute in their head when they're looking at it. So, I think the more people who ride them. Uh, the more people you'll see on them, you know, for sure. Yeah. I think that's the exact crux of it is um, anybody who's really explored it, uh, any shaper and surfer, I guess, who's really explored it, won't argue that there's actually a downside. They will always argue maybe that there's too many variables and therefore it's just this rabbit hole of trying to kind of always make subtle adjustments and you sometimes go down the wrong rabbit hole and so that's a waste and whereas with symmetrical boards you can you can isolate a lot more variables and get some predictability Um, because Donald Brink will say with any symmetrical board design there's asymmetrical improvements that you could make to it yeah I get that for sure so that's kind of interesting yeah I, I totally agree with him on that and um like I said, any every board has room for improvement, whether it be you know with construction yeah, or true. anything. But um, yeah, I think that's just I don't know if I have it in me to, to make every board an asymmetrical board. You know, I think it's just not in the way my brain works. I, you know, I don't know anybody who does. I mean, yeah. Donnie does, I yeah. suppose. But um, just to kind of reset that for the listeners, because for anybody who hasn't been exposed to it, it does sound very kind of foreign. But I've talked to Carl Ekstrom about it on the mm-hmm. podcast, yeah. Donnie Brink, uh, Matt Parker at Album, mm-hmm. Ryan Lovelace, and everybody kind of explains it differently. But yeah. what I've gotten from all of that is there was no reason to ever make symmetrical boards in the first place. Yeah. You don't, when you look at your foot and the stance, it isn't symmetrical because your heel adds weight. And your toes have the ability to leverage and lift, which your heel doesn't have. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you have a lot more inches on the front of your foot than you do on the back of your foot. You know, your toes go out longer. So there's all these, uh, there's no symmetry to your foot. There's no symmetry to the way that water traverses a board ever, Mm -hmm. even if you're going straight, you know. So um, there's really no reason to do symmetrical boards in the first place. So it opens up asymmetry. However, if you think that you're smart enough to design for all of those variables, <laughs> <laughs> then you're also kind of, 
you know, yeah. silly. Yeah. So it's kind of, there's a weird thing where can you, how many variables can you control for and design for versus accommodate for, you for know? For sure. Yeah. I think you can, you can get kind of carried away overthinking an asymmetrical board real easily. Yeah. Um, and if you're doing that for every one of your customers and every board you make, you know, I just, I feel like you, you might miss, miss it more than you, you nail it. True. You know, so. I love the idea though of keeping it open for magic. Yeah. And getting that like best board you've ever had. You totally. Know? I totally agree with you on that. It's, it's just interesting because, you know, our whole life, our society trains us that uh, symmetrical stuff is beautiful. You know, everything is symmetrical all the time. So we're just, since we're babies, train that, you know subconsciously most of the time but um yeah once you kind of break away from that and start not even thinking about that it it opens a lot more doors you know as you say that i was thinking conversation i had with manny caro and it's all about that kind of meticulous how things fit into one another and you look at the way a mountain is shaped Mm -hmm. like in nature generally symmetry um serves a purpose yeah and so, yeah, I guess there's an argument to be made on that side, too. <laughs> I'm going to back everything that. that I said. Um, <laughs> so you mentioned there's always improvements you can make from any board design and referenced materials. What are your preferred materials? What are you working with and why? Um, I guess I'm kind of a traditionalist, and um, mostly I, I use uh, just the polyurethane resins and the standard blanks and that sort of thing. Um, I feel like there there is improvement for, uh, I mean, a lot of people are working on all the environmental aspects of it and then the flex aspects of it for super performance and all that stuff. So I just, I, I don't think that I've, you know, obviously I'm doing it the more traditional way. So I'm, I'm not like pushing the, the realm of moving in that direction of performance wise, but um, yeah, I, I think there's so much room for improvement in all aspects of our industry, you know. What do you like about polyurethane and polyester resin? Um, I feel like it's pretty consistent working with it. Um, you kind of know what you're going to get. And uh, a lot of the boards that were made with this same material have been around for 50 years, you know, especially obviously the long boards, not so much short boards, but um, it's consistent. It, it looks good. It works good. Um, pretty easy to work with and uh, you know it's, it's, it's interesting still some of the top top surfers are riding the same construction so there must be something there you know yeah um your board your boards are largely known for their aesthetic mm-hmm. um their color work their art who's glassing your boards um it's you know it's the crew at the santa cruz board builders guild um namely Doug Fletcher laminating. Um, with that being said, I do a lot of them myself as well. Uh, so it's them, you know, laminating them. But I, you know, I do a lot of it myself. It's just trying to find the flow of production. So I can't laminate every board I do, but... Why not? It, <laughs> just, <laughs> just trying to figure the flow of being able to be in the shaping bay and in the lamb room and, you know, get the orders done so people aren't waiting too long that's that's kind of that's where the balance is you know i'm trying to figure that out because i love building all them all the way through and i'm definitely a part of every board you know i shape every single board and uh 
I, I may not necessarily laminate every board, but when it comes down to it, I may be like dropping a leash cup or, or like sanding one or just to kind of help the flow of it, you know? So, uh, it's kind of a group effort of getting them done right now, <laughs> laminating wise. So, um, I do want to dig into that cause I want to clear up misconceptions. I think, um, some people will talk about like, I do everything from beginning to end and imply that that makes it better somehow, you know? Yeah. Um, and then other people will kind of avoid mentioning that they send their boards off to get glassed somewhere else or men- or avoid that their boards are being cut on a machine or something like that. Yeah. And I'm not convinced that any one way is right or wrong. Um, I think communicating, I think it's very important for every person who does touch a board along the way to have very thorough communication, totally. you know, yeah. so that the sander is able to execute with the shaper's original intention was yeah but i also want to illuminate the limitations of running a business yeah you know like specifically you're somebody who's grown your your popular you're popular you have a lot of board orders uh, right yeah so what are some of the challenges with growing that business from the day when you could facilitate all the orders yourself you could take them all in you could shape the board laminate the board and then invoice appropriately, get paid from the, you take payment from the person, you know, yeah. to where you're at now. What have the biggest challenges been? Uh, th- I mean, it's just the flow. The biggest challenge is just the flow of getting the boards finished, I think, you know. And, and that kind of gets sticky in the lamination part in a way. There's just a lot of steps to laminate the boards. And uh, that's where I, I rely on having, like, a, a tight crew to help, you know. Um and that's where I jump in too to help that flow, you know, when I when I have to. But um, yeah, it's it's hard, it's hard growing. You know, I want to, I don't want to give up shaping every board. You know, I've I've had to um, to to jump onto uh, some computer shaping a little bit, you know, and I'm not afraid to say that. Uh, I think it's for me that's what makes sense. Uh, with that being said, I still hand shape a ton of boards. It's just uh, what are the benefits? To utilizing the computer well there's the benefits are consistency um you know the the computer files that i have used are all based off of boards that have been written they're scans from boards that that i hand shaped and then were written so they were um it's just for for you know for sake of having a model or something like that uh they're great for that and uh they they make it so I can still shape every board, you know? I can still touch every board. I'm the only person shaping them. Yeah. And I can get the orders done, and it and it frees up a little bit of time for me to to get in the lambing room and, and do the custom lamination that some people want on their boards and keep the flow going there. So it's been a tool for that. Um, I'm not a big computer guy. I, don't, I actually don't design those files on a CAD program. They're just scans off of boards that I shaped. Sure. Um, so they're basically just replicating proven models that I have. And I, I feel pretty good about that, you know, and it's not, every, it's not every board because I make custom boards for people. So if something fits that mold of the model and it'll work to be cut on the machine, um, I'll do that. But if someone specifically asks for a hand shape or if it's a total custom thing, I'm happy to do that as well. Mm-hmm. 
I'm curious. I'm always curious about the kind of the business of surfing and the business behind a lot of these conversations. And I think board builders growth just as a whole has been limited by some lack of basic business understanding, you yeah. know, and like uh, fundamentals like accounting, for example, totally. where if you look at a lot of other industries, tech being an example, there's zero, very, very few examples of somebody who gets into it, tech without a business plan, <laughs> without proper funding, yeah. without a very thorough understanding of accounting software. Totally. You know what I mean? And then you look at board builders as an example and go, how many of these guys got in with a business plan <laughs> with not only funding, but then future rounds of investment that they have mapped out in the yeah. next three years. You yeah. Know? And then how many of them even run their accounting on software? Yeah. Hardly any, you know? <laughs> totally. And and so I see that as a huge um, stumbling block for growth. So even when you become popular, like can you capitalize on the business and fulfilling all the orders in a timely fashion, making sure everybody gets paid, all that sort of things? Um, who's responsible for the back end of your business? I mean, ideally, I would think, as you said, you'd want to be in the shaping bay and laminating yeah. all day, every day. Yeah. You can't. So kind of who's responsible for the back end of... Well, as of now, I mean... I feel like I'm in a big transition period um, just with the, the growth that I'm feeling right now in the shop. But um, I have done everything myself, you know, all the way through. And, uh, you know, I've taught myself how to use QuickBooks and invoicing and all that stuff, you know. And, um, you know, I spend the evenings doing that stuff when I go home, you know, when the kids go to sleep, you know, I do that. Um, but, you know, some of the it's basically just flow it's getting the boards done you need help you know like getting the boards done and then also communicating with customers and all that stuff you need help and i feel like i'm at a point where i, I could use some back-end help it's just trying to figure out how that looks because the profit margin is so small on surfboards you know how do you pay somebody a living wage to uh to do that when i'm barely making a living wage you know so it's just I'm sure it all makes sense to have that person because that takes you to the next level, but it's just finding the right person. You know, I'm very passionate about what I do and I'm not, you know, everything's kind of, I've done everything myself. So it's hard to like pawn off a lot of work to other people, you know? Is there a solution? Is there a way to pull it off? Uh, there, there has to be, you know, does there? I, I think, I mean, for me, it does. I, I don't see myself doing anything else. I have so much time invested in, building surfboards i want to keep it going you know i need to support my family so we've got to keep it going you know well you can keep it going at a certain level of production yeah i guess the better question is is there a way to continue to grow your business without seeing a degradation in quality at a yeah. certain point um i really hope there is and i'm trying to figure out what would be the the next option you know to the next step to keep the quality you know i've had you know i have some I travel and shape, which kind of makes me building boards in other places. So like right now I have boards in Hawaii being glassed and I have some boards in Ventura being glassed and I have boards at my shop being glassed, trying to help the flow of boards being done, you know, getting finished. So hopefully that'll help get the production flowing. And then, you know, I'm just looking at other business models, you know, um, Jeff McCallum's got 
something interesting going with the way that he's restructured his brand. Um, Ryan Lovelace is restructured with the Trimcraft thing. It's, it's interesting seeing what these guys are doing and taking a different approach. We're from the same generation, basically, of board building. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like there has to be some sort of reevaluation. I don't know which one of those is right or if another one is right. But, uh, you know, I'm definitely opening open to figuring that out. And I'm at that stage where it's time. <laughs> You know, completely. Uh, it's uh, it's interesting. The people from our generation, uh, we have a lot of burdens with, uh, you know, high cost of living and all these things. You know, where the generation before us, they they got into these beach communities when it was a lot cheaper. So their living cost percentage wise is way less than what ours is now getting into it. And uh, the percentage of the cost of surfboards hasn't really matched the flow of the cost of living so. absolutely yeah which is why again i want to kind of tease apart and illuminate the value of a shaping machine mm-hmm. the value of contract classing like those aren't dirty words anymore they're only meant to kind of streamline the business yeah you know? for sure yeah i'm trying to use those tools to yeah they're tools. to help grow but uh it's you know i I kind of have a high standard of what I put out in the world quality wise with my product. And, um, I'm not just sending my boards to every glass shop to get glass. Right. So I kind of do my research or build a relationship with somebody before I decide to to do that. Because in the end I want my customer to get, you know, an equivalent product to where if I were to glass it to where Doug Fletcher were to glass it or Brian King or anybody, you know, those guys, it should all be like on the same level of quality. Right. You know, in regard to being busy, uh, what time does your day start and what time does it end? Um, I, I start pretty early. I'm like a five, five thirty guy in the morning and, uh, then I'll work till one thirty, sometimes to four, you know, it just depends on what's going on, you know? I'm self-employed, so I'm always working, but I'm typically in the shop from 5.30 in the morning on, you know, and then going in early leaves time for breaking away for a surf or, you know, jamming home to help with the family or whatever, so, yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about art mm-hmm. for a little bit. Your parents were both artists? Yeah, yeah. Do they make a living as artists? or? Um, they, you know, my, my dad was a photographer and he sold some photographs to magazines like surfer magazine stuff in the 70s he was always into photography and my mom was really into to painting and drawing and that sort of thing she still is they both are um they met um at an art supply store wow and then they ended up getting married and they opened their own art supply store and they did picture framing and all this stuff so they've always been surrounded by art and had a deep appreciation for it was that in santa cruz um the the supply store was in san jose over the hill but they lived here in santa cruz and um yeah so they've, they've just always been surrounded by artists doing that and them being artists themselves i think that just kind of rubbed off on me at a young age you know and just being exposed to all that stuff um, like my dad had a frame shop for a big chunk of my childhood you know and we'd sleep in the back room and stuff you know so just being exposed to all all those that art um, so I got into it young you know just in school I gravitated to, towards art instead of you know math and reading <laughs> you know so it's just kind of the direction that I've been on what mediums are you working with um, I 
I'm open to everything. I love taking photographs. I, um, I love like just sketching in a sketchbook with pencils or charcoal or pen or anything like that. Um, it's hard not to gravitate towards using resin as a medium being in a glass shop. You know, it's kind of been a go-to thing for probably the past 10 years, just being around it and the, the bold colors and the textures and all the stuff you can get with glass. And there's so much waste of it yeah. in the process of board building that there's all this stuff lying around, so why not use that if you can? So I've been playing with that, but I still just just love drawing, you know, hmm. what, you know, anything, just any kind of art, stacking bricks on the, you know, somewhere. Yeah. So, uh, how did you connect with Thomas Campbell? Um, I think we connected just through um, this Santa Cruz small town, you know, and probably similar trajectories and friend friendships that we have, you know, so. I got introduced to him from a friend, and we had, it was a mutual friend. And I think the first time, probably the first time that I met him, I surfed on one of his 12-foot skip fries at Cal's with him, you know. He was like, oh, let's go surf. And we all, you know, he took us down to, to Cal's. And, you know, I, I kind of idolized him forever. I grew up watching his surf films and stuff. And um, it's pretty cool to, like, surf with him. And then over time, just build a relationship. And then, then we ended up moving up to his property and had you know raised my kid for the first year and a half there and you know just just become a close friend kind of like a family member yeah so you're no longer living on his property not not anymore yeah we kind of grew out of the space there sure and uh we're down in town now but um we're still in touch he comes into the shop you know at least once a month and we'll do some artwork on boards or just talk about board design and you know or working on a board for him or either way how enviable is his quiver oh man that i think that was a big his quiver <laughs> has introduced me so much to other people's shapes you know just seeing it he's he's got such a deep quiver of legendary board builders you know and uh being exposed to that has really influenced my shaping in a way you know i would love to see somebody do a story on his quiver like i i've never heard anybody talk about it i've only heard people like yourself reference oh yeah and then we took out this 12 foot skip fry glider yeah and i was taught manny caro was like yeah and then he let me borrow this five five rich pavel fish and yeah. like every board somebody references <laughs> is like really iconic yeah he had a bunch of birches was yeah. what you said yeah, earlier yeah. you know yeah i mean He's right there with all those guys, you know, mixing it up. So, but then also ordering multiples from him, which I yeah. I'm down for, you know, yeah, like for sure. refining the yeah, relationship. With I think he's really big into that refinement and dialing in the the board and kind of honing in what that person does best and trying to to make the best one for him, you yeah. know. So, um, yeah, he's got a pretty eclectic quiver for sure, and you know, being in growing up in Santa Cruz we're kind of in a bubble where we're not exposed to a lot of other board builders right. especially like Southern California guys or um, some of these legendary people and uh, you know any kind of opportunity like that to be surrounded by these cool boards I never would have been it's, it's pretty cool yeah. I feel very lucky you both are partnered with Visla. how did you connect with them um, Thomas introduced me to, to Vinny um, who's one of the main guys at Visla, and uh, you know it just started out with some conversations and just feeling each other out and um, 
you know, I, I didn't know what to expect, uh, you know, just being a board builder and Santa Cruz here, and I'm sure they felt the same way about me, but we just kind of developed a relationship over about a year, year and a half, and, um, and then we started working on a couple projects together, and it just kind of turned into what it is now, which is, you know, basically, I feel like those guys over there are like family to me and my family, you know, and uh, just just a deep relationship with those guys. Well, we've not really seen that before where like a surf brand um, partners with. I mean, we see them sponsor surfers. We don't see them sponsor board builders yeah. and photographers and uh, laminators and stuff. What is that relationship like? What do they expect of you? And then what do you benefit from them? Yeah, the relationship is great. I mean, it's pretty amazing that a, a surf brand is looking at board builders and you know, laminators and photographers and stuff to, to team up with and crew up with and um, it's pretty refreshing and I think a lot of other brands are looking at, at them and watching and see how it turns out but I think that they're onto something there. I do too. And uh, yeah, you know, what I've gotten from, from our relationship is just, uh, you know, they have a big following. They're doing really well and uh a little of that kind of rubs off on me, I guess, being attached to them, sure. you know? So global recognition helps with that. Um, just, you know, I, Santa Cruz is kind of a small town and it's hard to, to, to branch out of it. You know, you see a lot of board builders here get stuck in Santa Cruz and they don't, they're not getting boards international, like an international presence. So um, being teamed up with a bigger brand like, like this led really helps that out a lot, you know? And, um, as for what I can do for them is just, uh, you know, I, I, I try to be a good person, you know, <laughs> like I, for one, I don't want to be like some guy that they're hearing about, you know, oh, that guy is, you know, yelling at somebody or whatever. But, um, yeah. And then, you know, creative stuff that I can offer them, you know, some through my artwork or boards or stuff like that, you know, I help maybe help give them some content in a way and, uh, kind of just, be a representative for Santa Cruz for them in a way, you know, kind of have my eyes on the pavement or in the water for them, you know, for other talent or, you know, just, just kind of be their, their guy for around here. Yeah. So, uh, I feels like it's been going good. You know, it's I've got such a good relationship with the whole crew over there now. And, um, and I think there's something to them, um, looking at kind of, more ordinary people like board builders it's just it's pretty relatable for the the consumer you know like i'm not doing huge airs when i go surfing stuff so you know most people aren't so you can relate to that right and you know i go to work every day and i work hard you know and most people are doing that so it's relatable so it's it's kind of like it's not like you're chasing like i feel like these big brands post up all this stuff of you know following the, the main guy and it's hard to relate to that for the general public and I think yeah. that Vistula's doing a good job with that you know yeah so um how closely do you follow <laughs> the guys doing the big airs like how closely are you watching the Rio event right now that's yeah, happening yeah. you are I mean when I can you know I'll, I'll tune into it when I have a little moment but um or I'll watch the the replays but I love that stuff you know I think it's the best you know yeah John John is insane you know i just like 
you get like sweaty palms when it's one of his heats you know he's about to get a wave and you're like what's he gonna do you know <laughs> it's like you have no idea just yeah. i love that spontaneity and same goes for like dane reynolds you know it's just you just it's so unpredictable you know and i love i love it yeah you know and i love that they're not like not afraid to to fall you know they're just doing it you know and they'll show that where uh, for for years it's like you never see anybody fall in a film or something you know so i mean that specifically um is true about dane with like all those marine layer edits for a number of years yeah it was not just the a plus clips yeah it gives hope to the groms you know to, to normal people like yeah, he's yeah. he's trying and failing and trying and making it. So. Right. John John lost this morning, by the way. Oh, he did. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, <laughs> he lost I'm in round four. For him. Me did. too. Well, like it's crazy. In round three yesterday, he had highlights of the entire event. Yeah. And then today, couldn't make it out of round four. Yeah. Bummer. Well, I think that's part of the. Um, that's just you know judging surfing, <laughs> so it's it's hard to to judge or compare two surfers in 30 minutes, you know? Yeah, completely. Yeah. Um, Who's surfing are you most excited to watch? Maybe you already just answered that, but... Well, I love watching those guys, but I would say... I I just, I really love watching Birch. I I feel like a lot of people probably say that, but it's kind of an undeniable talent there. And I feel like I I can relate because I'm kind of in a... I like uh, riding the right board for the occasion, you know, and he he just seamlessly goes from short boards to long boards to everything depending on what the condition calls for, and I, I think that's like a true surfer, and he does it so well, and he just looks like he's having so much fun, you know? Yeah. And, you know, there's just, it doesn't seem like there's a big ego going there, so it's, it's easy to, to back him up, you know? It's like to be stoked on that. Have you made any boards for him? I have not. Hmm. Yeah. Um, what surf media do you follow nowadays? Um, I guess I... I mean, the journal, Surfer's Journal, for uh, in-print stuff. That's kind of... if there's, I love picking those up and flipping through those. Um, I, I don't really dive around too much on the internet you know if, if i hear something that went on then I'll, maybe i'll do some research about it you know um sometimes i'll check surfline you know instagram kind of flip through there every once in a while and see you know the highlights or something like that of the day but um you know i have a ton of time to just dive in deep into the media you know i do <laughs> and i relate but it's bizarre it's like yeah. we used to I'm still processing it. Like when we were young, we had to seek it out. Otherwise it wouldn't find us. Totally. And I feel like now it just saturates, saturates us from all angles. Yeah. Therefore I never need to subscribe to another magazine For and sure. I almost don't even need to click on a given website. Yeah. Cause it'll either show up on Instagram and I can click over from there or something, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's very, everything's so accessible, like on hand, you just pick up your phone and look at it. So if, you hear of something then you can just find it really quick you know yeah but uh i think it does take away from the romance of getting your magazine for the month and getting you know all the whatever happened last month you know it's like you're looking at this magazine and flipping the page and you know there's that's pretty romantic it's like and to to not have that anymore it's almost depressing (laughs) i i feel a nostalgia for it even as you say it yeah but 
are you less romanced by surfing now than you were when you were a kid? You I, know? Would, I wouldn't say that. Me neither. Yeah. So it's like I feel the nostalgia, but it's kind of like, well, I wouldn't trade what I have now. Yeah, now yeah. it's pretty awesome. For sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's, it's weird. It's hard to compare the two. Like, I suppose. You, you know? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm just, I guess I don't spend a lot of time trolling around on the internet for uh, surf media stuff. You know? Why not? I think it's just time really okay. you know i'm busy i got a young family and um a growing business so i'm pretty spent you know i'll do sometimes do a quick little you know like i said if i heard something that happened or somebody's talking about something i'll go check it out and then that might lead into you know yeah 10 minutes of searching other stuff but um yeah i just i you know if i had more time then i probably would do it but i don't really have it so. time is a good answer i yeah because Without um, the restriction of time, I think about is the imagery less compelling than it was when I was a child? Are the articles um, more poorly written than when I was a child? Are the stories less compelling than when I was a child? And I haven't defined whether or not they are. Yeah. I I think it's all there. I think people are pushing themselves for content. There's more people taking photos and there's more people writing stories and all this stuff. So I feel like... It's there. People are, you know, pushing the limits of all that. Still, really good. We might be oversaturated. Yeah, yeah, maybe in a way. So, I mean, I don't think it's lost anything. It's just, it's just different, you know. Yeah, it's still the Surface Journal is still amazing though when you grab it and you look at it and hold it in your hand. Mm -hmm. There's something about print, you know. Maybe it's just because we're from that era of where that's what it was, so it means more to us now. But yeah, I don't know. Um, what are your favorite Instagram accounts to follow? Uh, doesn't have to be surf related <laughs> i like just following my my friends and family but uh you know like kook slams is amazing you know like that or um they never run out of content either they don't kooks are always getting slammed yeah, every single day <laughs> yeah i mean that's so good that kind of those kind of like fails are, are good you know to an extent but then when you, they're just like back to back people getting worked then it's just like so <laughs> when i was a kid America's Funniest Videos, if somebody stepped on a rake and got hit, I remember my grandma being like, defining that as violence. Yeah. Just like, don't watch that violence. <laughs> totally. And I'm like, dude, if she saw what we see today. Oh, man. You see motorcycle crashes at full speed on the on Instagram every day. It's you know? crazy. Yeah. Our tolerance for that stuff has gone so... It, it really high. has. It's There's there's so much of it out there. Um, and it's all good. You know, I love like any kind of thing to, to lighten up the day you know in any way i mean it's not like i'm running the heavy day but just just funny stuff is good you know (laughs) yeah puppies yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it's all so good you know i just don't know how like some of those guys they they have so much content i don't know if they have like a team finding the content for them or what they would have to i'd imagine because there's so much you do yeah you get to a point too where it's like once people know that's what you're posting they're then feeding you like just followers of yours who yeah. aren't working for you are just feeding you oh yeah they're all pa- yeah, yeah. i can like, see look that. at this video that i saw yesterday <laughs> yeah. um nice. what's your current relationship like with surfing obviously you have tremendous um responsibilities between family and business yeah um i i'm more stoked about surfing than ever uh it's just i have to be more strategic strategic about about it yeah so it's more of like waiting for when the waves are good or the tide's good and and making a point to catch it then instead of uh 
you know, going on these long missions like I used to do, drive 45 minutes south and then drive another half an hour another direction looking for the best sandbar or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so though it's it's changed in that sense, but I'm still so stoked about it. And maybe the, the limited time that I have makes it, uh, makes my time out there even better, you know? I kind of have meaningful. Yeah, I have I just lower the expectations and just go out and make the most of my time in the water and um, yeah, I'm so stoked on it. How how often are you surfing nowadays? It it just depends on what's going on. If there's like a trip or a deadline or something where I really have to like crank out the work beforehand, then uh, obviously not as much that week, but uh, if there's waves, like there's a good run of waves and I'll surf, you know, every day if I can. You know, it just just kind of depends on uh, time and flow and all that stuff. Um, when was the last time you went on an actual, like, dedicated surf trip that wasn't related to building boards in the area or something like that? It's been a while for, for that dedicated trip. I feel like I'm due for that because yeah. I'm always, like, every trip that I go on is based around either going somewhere to build boards and then surf or, you know, family trip and surf. It's kind of like mixing it all up. I haven't had, it's been a long time since I've had. Would you even want to do a dedicated surf trip? I mean, I would, it would be amazing to go on a boat trip and go surf, something like that, you know, have that opportunity. I just don't have the time right now to do it, yeah. but um, it'll happen, you know, for yeah. sure. I, I haven't like lost all hope for that. <laughs> no, you know, I haven't been on a surf trip in a long time either. And I don't know that I even want to right now. Like, I don't want to just do it all leisurely or recreational activity all day for a week yeah i like working yeah know? yeah i do too i love what i do you know it's yeah. that's shaping boards is almost equivalent of surfing for me you know right. so i love what i do so i don't feel like i'm getting depressed because i'm not surfing or something like that it's just uh yeah if, if the opportunity came that would be great but at the same time i it'd be a bummer to be on like a week trip somewhere and then have it be flat. You know, I'd be, be feeling totally. guilty, you know? So. Oh, the worst. <laughs> no way you could justify that. Yeah. Um, who would you love to build boards for? Which surfer? Um, no, I would, you know, I, I'd be stoked to see maybe Joel Tudor ride one of my long boards. That'd be cool. You know, I've idolized him since I was a little kid and um, I feel like he would, give me an honest opinion on it which i think would be uh i i hold a lot of value in that you know i think that good or bad is good for me you know sure. so like uh yeah heavy critique is is good i can learn a lot from that and i'm open to that so good. i would love to be have somebody anybody ride boards who can like feel the sensations going under their feet and then translate that into words and then spit that back out at me that'd be great I think that's key. Like, there's a lot of people who can surf well, but they're not good at articulating why or yeah, what they're doing. For sure. And so, like, if you can give the more people you have who can do that well, I think the more the better your shaping is going to be. You know, you're going to learn so much from it. I'm glad to hear that you have that thick skin, though, to where you want that feedback. Yeah. And I'll be honest, as your popularity grows, it's going to be harder and harder to come by. Yeah. Everybody you interact with is going to like just love you and laud you yeah. and just be like, hey, I want to get a board from you. It's yeah. all beautiful and great, yeah. you know? Yeah. I know. I still I have some people like that, too. You know, you give them a board to try and you're like hoping for this like deep conversation afterwards. And they're like, yeah, it was good. You right. know, it's like, OK, well. How often do you ride other people's boards? 
Um, I love riding other people's boards. I think uh, you can learn a lot from that too. Not in a sense of like, I'm going to ride someone else's board and then like take a rail template off of it and copy it, but more, more for like the sensations that you feel riding other people's boards, whether it be just paddling or, or, you know, how the board feels when it's on rail or any of that thing. And, uh, I don't know. I've just, that's just kind of how my surfing has always been. I've always been in the water trading boards with people Mm -hmm. since I was a little kid. Like, Oh, you want to try this board? I want to try that one. Let's try it out. You know? And I think there's a lot to learn from that. And, um, with that being said, yeah, I think like my quiver, my personal quiver has more of other people's boards than my personal boards. Does it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe just cause I hold on to those because I know if I'm not going to get another one, you know, or something like that, but. Whose boards are you riding? Um, a lot of local guys. I love riding boards from people that I have worked with before, you know, um, I have a Steve Coletta board that I like a lot. Uh, one of Michelle Juneau's boards. Um, I have a Hout board that's pretty amazing, long board. Um, who else? I have some kind of older boards, too. I love riding, like, 60s long boards. Um, just trying to dissect those a little bit, you know, like I have a Nueva Nose Rider and a Yater Spoon. Those, those things are, you know, timeless boards. And to be able to, like, if I'm questioning something and go back and ride one of those and kind of get a little reset on, mm. on something, then pretty cool to have that kind of in the library of boards so if, if you could order one board from anybody on the planet what would you order um that, that's a tough question there's so many good boards out there but you i don't know one. yeah i would say if i only <laughs> get one probably the i would go for one that would be kind of more difficult to get would be probably like a a glider or those eagle gliders from fry you know just because where the odds of getting one of those and then you know you have have a board like that it's like a, you have an 11 foot board let's say you could ride that for the rest of your life you know you could you can be 90 years old and still ride that board mm-hmm. so that's probably what i go for is one of skips skips gliders do you own any skip fry boards i do not you've yeah. obviously ridden the one that uh thomas campbell has have you ridden other ones yeah i've ridden a couple of thomas's boards and i've ridden some older ones some like a uh like the 70s kind of egg boards that he was making. Um, I've ridden one of those. It's a handful over the years, you know. Can you sum up your experience riding them or define what's unique about them? Or was uh, it a positive experience riding them? Yeah, they've been positive. Some of them are that I've ridden were really hard to ride and not very user-friendly. And that may be said for all of them. But once you learn them, they, they do a lot. They do so much for you, you know. And they, they have... Uh, they're just so unique. He, there's no one really shaping the way he does, and uh, they're they're just these boards with all this stuff going on. You know, they're not very simple. You know, there's a lot of bottom contour and all this stuff, but he's such a simple surfer. So it's kind of interesting that relationship that he has with his boards, and you can kind of feel that. You know, when you're riding them. I need to understand how the difficulty in the learning curve pays off (laughs) my brother doesn't drink alcohol and um one time i was like 
why not? And he's like, I don't like the taste of it. And I'm like, yeah, no, but you'll develop a taste for it. And he's yeah. like, if I have to force myself to like something I don't like initially, then yeah. what's the benefit? Yeah. I was like, well, you get drunk at the end and yeah. that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's so, true. So yeah. w- when do you get drunk on the skip fries? <laughs> yeah. Like what is the payoff ultimately? I, I think that you can tap into sensations that you wouldn't get normally. You know, it's, it's like you're, you're pushing your limit so much on it that it brings you into this next realm, you know? I, I don't know how else to describe it besides that it, you know, they're so unique in a way and maybe that challenge, it kind of adds stoke or like takes away the redundancy kind of, you know, if something's too easy to ride, then it's kind of maybe gets boring, you know? Yeah. So to have something that's dynamic and um, does things you're not really expecting sometimes and it kind of adds to the fun of it all, I think. It taps into a... Um you know the uh the value is kind of in the journey and so when you get out there on a board like the relationship that you're developing with that board getting feedback from it is all part of what's fun about it if it just went out there if you just went out there and the board automatically took off and went i don't know if that's really the end goal yeah i i think um i like being surprised when i go surf sometimes you know and some of the, your best maneuvers or best sensations you get are when something happens when you were least expecting it, you know? Right. And that kind of adds to the stoke for me, you know? Yeah. Not like an out of control kind of thing. Right. But just like, I don't know, when there's like a little more flair, you know, something happened that you weren't expecting or a little zing or something, you know? I, I'm, yeah, I don't feel like I'm doing the best job articulating it, but I think that, um, Whenever I try to impose my will on the board is my worst experience. Yeah. Whenever I think that I'm a good enough surfer to go out and rip this board is when I don't surf well. Yeah. And kind of the best boards I've ever had guide the way. And they show me a new level of my own performance, you totally. know, by kind of letting the board do its thing. Yeah. And that's how I feel people have spoken about those skip fry boards. I've never ridden one, mm-hmm. but I hear a lot of that in that it's kind of relinquishing everything you think you know and then the board finds either trim or whatever it happens to be that you hadn't experienced on any other board yeah a greater degree of it than you've ever experienced totally yeah and there's just certain boards that people have been making for so long and dialing in and he's been working on that for a long time it's it's like a like a little hole or something it's like one of the hardest boards to ride but when you do get in when it all comes together it's like the best sensation ever you know? right so it's uh and he's been stuck on that design for so long it's right. so refined you know right so it's those kind of boards are you know they're hard to come by there's people who have been so true to what they've been doing since the beginning and they haven't gone with the trends just because they need to you know they kind of stick to their path right constant refinement yeah like when you hear people talking about a sushi chef in japan refining rice cooking technique you know totally yeah um the final question for everybody interviewed is just what was the last surfboard that you rode um the last board was a five eight uh twin fin like a san diego style list fish twin fin um i shaped it It wasn't a list fish but that style um keel fin and uh it's actually uh, Vistla puts on this uh, Cosmic Creek contest, Salt Creek, and they have a division where they have board builders build a board um, 
from an era, era, and then you write it. So that's beginning of June is the contest. So I made this board. Um, we had an option to do a IPA sting board or a um, list fish style, and I chose the list fish. So. So Just, you send the board down there, and then people write it in the comp. Actually, I will be writing it. I write it. <laughs> You're competing in the yeah, comp. Yeah. So they. Awesome. So the the shaper builds the board and then rides it. So. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So it's pretty cool. Who are you competing against? Um, I forget. I don't know who's going to be there this year. Okay. Yeah, I, they have a pretty good deep selection, you know. Yeah. They, I mean, some of those guys are super competitive. I'm sure. <laughs> That's Fun. <super> yeah. <laughs> awesome, dude. Well, yeah. thank you for your time. Thank you. It's been great. You're welcome. Thank you again, Travis Reynolds. Uh, he was headed to Japan just a couple of days after this recording. He had just gotten home from the boardroom show in Southern California a few days before. So um, this was a lot of time for him to be able to carve out. So thank you, Travis, for that time. And uh, I know the listeners appreciate it. If you did appreciate it as a listener, drop him a note on Instagram. Tell him that you loved it. And um, I would appreciate that. All right. Lots to look forward to that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. Obviously, go download Scott Bass's podcast if you're interested in that, The Boardroom Show Podcast. It's in the app that you're listening to this show in, so just search The Boardroom. And then, of course, The Grit with Chaz Smith tomorrow with Todd Richards. So look forward to that. Hopefully, we'll uh, rope Chris Cote into that spin conversation in the future. If we don't put it to bed completely tomorrow... I'll loop Chris Cote in as well. Since he is now on the world stage, on the World Surf League, we can't have him miscalculating a simple mathematic rotation. It's defined by math. So we will get to the bottom of that tomorrow, maybe in the future with Chris. So look forward to that, The Grit. And then, of course, next week's episode with Aaron James. If you uh, are a fast reader, go ahead and grab that book on Amazon, Surfing with Sartre. Burn through it in the next week. If not, just at least preview it and kind of get an idea for the outline of it. Um, Really enjoyable conversation next week. Aaron James, Surfing with Sartre. That is all I have for you now. Check out everything that Travis and I discussed in this episode on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Chime in in the comment section. And then, of course, on social media at surfsplendor. I am out of gas, and uh, that's it. All right, hope that you're getting waves. We've got to run a swell in Southern California for the first time in, I don't know, months, a season. It's crazy how uh, bad the waves have been. So finally getting in the water here. And I was actually able to on my trip up north to visit Travis and Dave Parmenter and all that stuff too. So nice to get in the cold water up there. All right. I hope that you enjoy the rest of your week. Hope that you get into the water, share some waves, and shred on, of course.